48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Two pandemocrats quit LegCo saying they can't remain in a council appointed by Beijing. An appeal board upholds the ban on a march planned for National Day. And a teenager is jailed for almost four years for throwing petrol bombs at a police station. Pro-democracy lawmakers Ray Chan and Chu Dick have officially informed the Legislative Council Secretariat of their decision not to stay on for another year. Beijing decided to extend the current LegCo term by at least 12 months after an election that was due to take place a few weeks ago was scrapped. Officials cited the coronavirus pandemic for abandoning the poll, which is now expected to be held next September. Mr Chan says the extended LegCo term is not legitimate and he hopes the rest of his pro-democracy colleagues will also boycott it. I will participate in the future election if there's a fair election one year later. I have not any concrete plan at this stage. If more legislators choose not staying in the council, maybe we can form a platform to monitor uh, the government and monitor the council's issues. If not, uh, just two of us left. I think I will do more education work. Let more Hong Kong people continue to support the democratic movement. Another 15 pandemocrats are expected to announce tomorrow whether they'll remain in LegCo for the extra year, basing their decision on the results of an opinion poll. An appeal board has upheld a police ban on a march planned for National Day, agreeing there would be health risks because of the pandemic. The Civil Human Rights Front had hoped to use the demonstration to call for the return of 12 Hong Kongers detained in Shenzhen after being picked up as they tried to flee to Taiwan by boat. Calvin Ho is a spokesman for the front. The Hong Kong police keep using COVID-19 as an excuse to stop us to organise all the assembly. We ask all the Hong Kong people to be cautious, especially on 1st of October. It is possible for everyone that you will be arrested because we can see the regime want to use fear to rule Hong Kong but we will not be scared. A teenager has been jailed for three years and ten months for hurling petrol bombs at Kwai Chung Police Station. Candice Wong reports. Kelvin Chen, a trumpet teacher who has just turned 18, admitted throwing petrol bombs on January the 29th this year in an attempt to set police vehicles parked at the station on fire. Police found another 11 petrol bombs at his subdivided flat and Chen pleaded guilty at the district court to attempted arson and possessing items with the intent to destroy or damage property. In sentencing, District Judge Amanda Woodcock noted that the teenager had spent time online learning how to make the petrol bombs. He went out and bought the materials and he had planned his attack. She said despite his young age and his usual good conduct, his intention to cause damage by setting fires merited a lengthy sentence. Supporters of Chan waved and shouted words of encouragement at the end of the hearing and he gave them a thumbs up in return. A luxury residential plot on the peak, which failed to sell two years ago, has been included in the administration's land sale programme for the next quarter. As Candice Wong reports, the government is playing down concerns that its full-year housing target may not be met. 
The Secretary for Development, Michael Wong, says two residential sites in Kai Tak and the Peak will be put up for tender in the coming months. Together, the plots can house 630 private flats. Along with other projects, some 2,780 private units will be made available in the coming quarter, taking the total for the first three quarters of the fiscal year to 7,400. Mr Wong was asked if he's confident the government will be able to meet its target of 12,900 new private flats by the end of this fiscal year. A lot would depend on whether um, in the remaining months of this financial year, the supply from the private sector can catch up. For the government, uh, we need to come up with around 9,000 units uh, equivalent of land. And we are quite confident that we'll be able to do that. A commercial site at the central harbour front will also be up for grabs, although the government had originally hoped to sell it during the current quarter. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Lawmakers have approved the government's request for another $24 billion for pandemic relief measures. The money will be used to help sectors affected by the coronavirus crisis and to purchase future vaccines. The funding re- request was passed by 37 votes to 23. RTHK's staff union is demanding the public broadcaster withdraw its decision to extend the pro- probationary period for prominent TV reporter Nabella Cosa. It says management have linked the move to a recent civil service memo reminding bosses to consider an employee's temperament, personal characteristics and conduct when it comes to assessment reports. Joanne Wong has more. Complaints and letters of praise regarding the reporter flooded in during the protests last year as she fired tough questions at officials during press conferences. An investigation into those complaints has now been reopened and Ms. Colser has been told her three-year probationary period as a new civil servant is being extended by four months. After a meeting with management, the RTHK program staff union said the civil service memo last month was cited as the main reason for the probation decision. But union chairwoman Gladys Chu says political reasons are a more likely explanation. To say that these reports did not have not reflected or have not taken into serious consideration of Nabella's temperament, personal characteristics and conduct is unreasonable and unbelievable. So except for political reasons, we cannot figure out additional reasons that is work-related that justify such arrangement. Ms. Chu says the union suspects the Commerce and Economic Development Bureau, which oversees RTHK, has a role to play in the controversy. The deputy director, Mr. Eugene Fung, did not directly answer to our question regarding the person or persons behind the decision about Nabella's probation extension. However, after like repeated inquiry, we feel that Mr. Fung was under great pressure and that although he reminded us that such appointment arrangement uh, was under our RTHK management scope of work. But if we look at the charter, the RTHK charter, we would immediately understand that the appointment or termination of appointment was actually under the supervision of the Bureau. 
So in that case, I'm afraid that the bureau has a great part to play in this. But the minister in charge of the bureau, Edward Yao, brushed aside the suggestion. What you are talking about is a staff matter for within a government department, which under the existing arrangement is a matter for the department to handle. Because, well, as all government departments, uh, they have a, their own policy to establish performance, promotion and other staffing matters. This is an entirely a matter for the department, so it's inappropriate for me to comment on this. RTHK earlier said there are established mechanisms and procedures to handle employment matters, and it can't comment on individual cases. An association of domestic worker agencies says it's concerned that helpers from Indonesia might just up and leave employers they don't like once they no longer have to pay fees to secure jobs here. The Indonesian government is hoping to ease the financial burden on domestic helpers, but the association warns Hong Kong employers will soon have to pick up part of the tab. Wendy Wong has details. The chairman of the Hong Kong Employment Agencies Association, Chung Kit Man, told an RTK program that previously mates from Indonesia had to pay around $10,000 in various fees to get a job here. But in future, it's believed employers will have to pay around $4,000 of the cost for things like visa charges, social security fees, and helpers' health checks. The Indonesian government will pay the rest, mainly the cost of training. Mr. Chung said this will increase the cost of hiring a helper from Indonesia from around $14,000 to $18,000. He said he's worried that some Indonesian workers might quit their jobs quickly if they find they don't like them, as the cost in doing so wouldn't be that high anymore. A spokeswoman for the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body, String Gatin, says it's unfair to claim that Indonesian helpers will start switching jobs irresponsibly. There is no such reason why the domestic worker needs to change employer if the employer or the working condition is really good. There is must be a reason why the domestic worker needs to change their job or change the employer. So we cannot put it in together, like, you know, because of uh, no agency fees, so many of the migrant workers will change a job in Hong Kong. We need to understand that changing a job is our right, that is not criminal, you know, like other workers, they can change job anytime, why only pointing migrant domestic worker that, you know, we cannot change a job. Mr. Chung, meanwhile, said he also expects the Filipino government to implement a similar policy on helper fees. Hong Kong's top court has highlighted the importance of electoral officers observing procedural fairness whenever they decide to bar someone from running in the territory's elections. The Court of Final Appeal made the point as it explained a ruling that stripped pro-government lawmaker Yan Chan of her LegCo seat. Francis Sitt reports. The High Court had earlier ruled that there was clear material irregularity in the Kowloon West Lechko by-election held in November two years ago, as the returning officer did not give pro-democracy candidate Lao Siu Lai a chance to explain her position before disqualifying her. Yan Chan, who was unseated due to this ruling, had hoped to overturn the decision. Her lawyers argued that Ms Lao would have been barred from running anyway, as past evidence showed she would not uphold the basic law. But earlier this month, the Court 
Court of Final Appeal dismissed Ms. Chen's bid for a legal challenge. Now explaining why, Justices Robert Ribeiro, Joseph Falk and Andrew Zhang said the right to be heard goes directly to the question of fairness. The judges said disqualifying someone without giving them an opportunity to respond not only affects a person's basic political and procedural rights, but also the integrity of the electoral process and public confidence in it. And they said it isn't good enough just to look at the outcome of an election to try to determine whether there had been any irregularity, adding that a candidate who is unlikely to win or is even bound to lose enjoys just as much protection of his or her rights under election law as the frontrunner in the poll. When COVID-19 first emerged, Beijing shut down wildlife markets across the country amid strong suspicions the virus originated from the seafood wholesale market in Wuhan. Health authorities have since denied that, and there's now growing pressure on the mainland to restart the wild animal meat trade. That's because some of the country's poorest people rely on the breeding of snakes and types of rat for food or medicine to make a living. The BBC's Robin Brandt has been to Guangxi province to find out more. There are dogs barking, but it's not dogs that we've come looking for. The sign out the front has a cobra in the corner. This is a snake farm, but there are no snakes here. There's just a single white plastic tray on the dusty floor, and it's full of their empty eggs. There's a long wait too, struggling in limbo for the woman who owns this breeding business. I lost a lot of money. I can't even afford milk powder for my baby. Even if we could pay back all the debt, we'd have no money to run any business. The government bans have destroyed livelihoods, including hers. The smell of the reptiles standing here between these buildings is inescapable. But this has been a snake farm without any snakes for months. But while there's fears and unanswered questions about the corona outbreak, this business is going nowhere. She showed us what the pits used to look like. Footage on her phone showed a man with a rod hitting and then lifting cobras into a white standing net. Hundreds of them were bred here for people to eat or as an ingredient in Chinese medicine. We still don't know exactly what caused the new corona outbreak. China's leaders won't even confirm that it originated here. Eight months on, a lot remains uncertain. Take China's myriad street and so-called wet markets. Selling wild animals is now banned. Some places have outlawed the sale and transport of almost all live animals, but it's not uniform. In one random backstreet market in Guangxi province, we watched live chickens being shoved into bags, then weighed alongside puppies and a stall with turtle shell and what we were told were wolf pelts. It's just that we've come a long way from Shanghai. And, and China's government is under intense pressure to end this trade. It's threatened severe punishment for anyone caught breaking the rules. But new laws haven't yet been passed to make these bans permanent. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Ray Chan and Xu Huidic quit LegCo saying they can't remain in a council appointed by Beijing. An appeal board upholds the ban on a march planned for National Day and a teenager is jailed for almost four years for throwing petrol bombs at a police station. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has decimated entire industries across the globe and Hong Kong is no exception. But it's not all been destructive. Businesses struggling to survive have been forced to adapt and in doing so have come up with some innovations. This report from Priscilla Ung. All right, the first store we're going to visit is right in front of me. This is a walking tour of Central. Aze in Chinese means big sister. But there are no tourists, at least not in person. With international travel at a virtual standstill, tourists can get in. So all the participants of this tour are actually at home, taking in the sounds and sights through a virtual online tour. This is the first virtual tour Olivia has led for an international group, so it's a work in progress. But already, she thinks she's found a winning formula. What sets us apart from shows like Netflix or YouTube is that real, real time. We talk to them. We chat with them over the chat box. Which movie this is? Yes, very good, Kyle. That's The Dark Knight. We may play little games with them. Anyone else wants to take a guess? $40 from Sarah from Hong Kong. She knows the price, doesn't she? <laughs> you can reach a lot more audience members from around the world in real time. And there's actually a lot of potential there that hasn't been tapped. Olivia is not just stopping at tours. Her company is planning to expand into virtual team building sessions and workshops and have been pitching these ideas to potential clients. We are now getting more and more queries uh, and business is expanding. We run like over 100 tours to over 20 destinations last year. But uh, starting from February this year, all the tours are cancelled. Like, yeah, tours down to zero um, from like in a month's time. So that would be a very um, dramatic challenge for our team and for our company. Jamie and his travel company also had to adapt to survive after COVID hit. It had previously carved out a niche conducting tours to more unconventional destinations like North Korea, Iran, and Chernobyl in Ukraine. Hello everyone, welcome to the new class about Korean culture. They've now replaced tours with online seminars. Rubio is another co-founder of the company. Even though we can't travel right now, but I think the demand for cultural contents as well as the desire to learn about international culture still exists. So we have topics ranging from North Korean politics and culture and travel philosophy lessons. We also have lessons to compare the nuclear accident in Ukraine and that of Fukushima, Japan. This new approach has significantly cut down on their financial losses and the firm's now attracting between 40 to 50 paying customers per online lesson. We would expect that the tourism industry or business would not return before like Q3 or Q4 next year. Mm -hmm. So indeed we have pivoted to um, different businesses, um, creating different online courses is one. And also we are trying to uh, pivot our team to digital marketing business. So we try to help brands and uh, corporates to go digital for their promotion and, and also some branding campaign. You might not have thought it, but the pandemic has also dried up business for the local wine industry. Natalie is the editor of a local wine magazine. 
In Hong Kong, a lot of the wine importers they rely a significant amount of the revenues um, on trade sales, meaning from you know restaurants, bars, nightclubs. When tough social distancing rules were introduced, that channel was sort of shut out. So they're running dry for quite a few months, and a lot of government subsidies went to restaurants and bars, sort of uh, ignore the supply chain behind it. Wine importers and suppliers like Bojan say this bottle sickness has forced them to think on their feet. We a little bit changed the strategy, so we start with the direct sales, especially uh, internet businesses booming a lot, and uh, and our very loyal private clients as well. But with travel next to impossible, how can suppliers keep their stocks fresh with new vintages from different winemakers? They wanted to do like a, because many people uh, cannot travel. Uh, we haven't done anything uh, with people internationally. Not a problem. Winemakers used to fly in in person. Now they just send their wine and do the rest online. So much for today. It was really great uh, to see you. I hope to see you again very soon. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it obviously works. For many years, we didn't even think in this way. You know, we were waiting for a person to come to visit us, but now actually we see that perfectly working. Post COVID, he believes virtual wine tasting practice will be here to stay, saying it's economical, user friendly, and convenient. And the others whom we spoke to also said they will do what it takes to stay on top of their game. There's a huge paradigm shift of our learning behavior because everything is shifting online, and I think it's going to be permanent. From now on, virtual and in-person products will always be side by side on our portfolio. And that wasn't something that we could do before, before this COVID pandemic. And now all these are possibilities. Trade with China once made the Australian economy the envy of the world. But diplomatic spats over COVID-19, allegations of political interference and espionage have seen relations sour. Canberra fears that trade is being used as a political weapon, while Beijing accuses Canberra of subsidising wine exports and dumping cheap produce into the country. The BBC's Phil Mercer reports. Certainly the Chinese have developed quite a taste for Australian wine. Some of the most popular brands come from here, the Hunter Valley. This is one of Australia's most famous wine-growing regions, about a two-hour drive to the north of Sydney. And we've come up today to speak to an industry veteran. Well, we're at Tyrrell's in the Hunter Valley. This is the original site, and the great-grandfather came in... 1858. Bruce Tyrrell runs one of Australia's oldest wineries and has seen the rise of China's assertiveness. It didn't entirely surprise me in that China has been muscling its way around. What could be the worst case scenario? Oh, if they whacked, say, a 50% tariff on Australian wine and priced us out of the market. And then, you know, the Europeans would be happy because they'll come back in and become number one supplier. The Australian way is a very straightforward way, a very blunt way of communicating, doing business, yet the diplomacy in all of this is very sensitive. Do you get the sense that Australia should perhaps be 
a bit firmer with China when it comes to these sorts of issues? Yeah, look, we, China's Australia's major trading partner. We're not a lot of people. We have to be a little bit careful. You know, I'm not going to get in the ring with Muhammad Ali unless I've got something pretty big. We can't push our way around too much. So we've got to be careful and we've, as a country, and negotiate. I think we've, we've made some quite firm stances. Australia denies that its wine shipments to China are subsidised or underpriced, but says it will cooperate with the anti-dumping investigation. Ministers are choosing their words carefully. But Matt Canavan, who's a former member of the cabinet, accuses China of economic coercion. It's a pattern of behaviour we're seeing from China and I don't think they can be a trustworthy business partner anymore the way they're acting. Industry figures are warning thousands of jobs are at stake if China follows through on a threat to impose tariffs on Australian wine imports. A third of Australian wine exports have gone to China. Last year, the trade was worth almost 900 million US dollars. Helen Sorzak from the Australia-China Business Council believes this latest skirmish won't cause too much of a hangover. There is a perception that bilateral relations are deteriorating. In fact, we're going from strength to strength. We're now going billions of dollars into debt post-COVID-19. China will be crucial to our economic recovery. Australia owes its recent prosperity to China, thanks in large part to sales of iron ore and coal. Given this economic reality, standing up to Beijing isn't easy. Senator Penny Wong from Australia's opposition Labour Party says firm diplomacy is needed. Disengagement or decoupling from China isn't an option for any country, given China's place in the world. So we have to find a way to work through those differences and to have a productive relationship with China in which we never walk away from who we are. Senior government ministers in Canberra say calls to their counterparts in Beijing are invariably not returned. This great wall of silence shows perhaps that the Chinese know who's in charge. China remains a diplomatic puzzle that Australia has yet to solve. Britain's most musical family, the Canet Masons, are seven classically trained siblings aged between 11 and 24. One brother was the first black winner of the BBC Young Musician of the Year and played at the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Now they've come together as a family for the first time to record an album which also features a special appearance from the award-winning actress Olivia Colman. The BBC's Rebecca Jones has this report. The music never stops in the Canny Mason family home in Nottingham. The seven extraordinary siblings are gathered around a computer screen telling me about their latest project. It is incredibly fragile and delicate. That's Sheku talking about Aquarium from Carnival of the Animals. It's really quite sad and touching, I think. The two brothers and five sisters have recorded Saint-Saëns' suite of movements about animals. It's their first album as a family. And while it sounds harmonious, working together can pose challenges. As Aminata, who's 15 and plays violin and piano, explains. We all do get moments when we all have overriding ideas. But we all have strong personalities, so yeah, sometimes we do feel strongly about our ideas. But it's very much a mutual thing. <laughs> Mariatu, what's it like being the littlest? It varies. Sometimes it's nice. 
Sometimes I feel I'm a bit too small in the kitchen because sometimes when everyone just comes in, I'm quite small, and everyone just like barges past me and everything. And people always pull me aside by my head, which I find annoying. This is your first album as a family. Why now? I mean, we obviously perform a lot together as a family, and so it felt like a lovely thing to make a recording of that at the ages that we are at the moment. And also, we all grew up listening to albums like Peter and the Wolf as children and remembered being so inspired by that a story accompanied by music. It's all part of the Canny Mason's mission to introduce young people to classical music and, says pianist and eldest sister Isata, demystify it. Many of our concerts, we don't get that many children there because, you know, they're often late in the evening and classical music also maybe isn't seen as that accessible to many children. There should be more classical music that's aimed at children. The Canny Masons know they are lucky. Jennifer, who's 18, plays the piano and cello and has been awarded a scholarship to the Royal College of Music. We went to two amazing state schools that really supported music and encouraged us to continue music outside of school as well. We really want every child to have that kind of opportunity at their school and I think especially now when music really isn't seen as a priority in schools, we really want it to go back to one of the main priorities. For us, it's helped us become the musicians that we are today. While the Canny Mason family provide the music, the author of War Horse, Michael Morpurgo, provides the words. I wish for you a world where the whale and the dolphin, the turtle and the jellyfish can live the life of the deep undisturbed. He's written 15 new poems about animals for the album. What made me want to do it and what inspired me with each one was not to try just to make them funny, but with a bit of an edge. As we know, the natural world we live in, we are fast destroying, and uh, we have treated these creatures, exploited them, and I wanted this to come out not so it's heavy, but so that it's part of the tale. So, for instance, when I wrote a poem about a tortoise, which is one of them, it was a sort of a lesson from a tortoise to us all. Writer Michael Morpurgo ending that report. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Steve Dunthorn from our newsroom. No one wants accidents to happen. Building safety is always important, and it's too dangerous to neglect it. Concrete spalling can be deadly, illegal drainage connections are hazardous, and loose window frames can fall from height. Don't carry out unauthorized building works, and always appoint a qualified professional or contractor to check your building. Live a happy life when your building is safe. Visit bd.gov.hk for details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December. We'll have moments to remember. 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 Moments, moments to remember. That's the title of this program, and we're going on and from now until 1 a.m. I'm your host and friend, 
Ray Cudero. You're listening now to Nostalgia, our kind of music. Mantovani. <laughs> 